0: From Like to Know It, this is Influencer Radio, a show about the influencer industry. This summer, I'm traveling across the pond to our London office to sit down with some of the most successful influencers in the United Kingdom. Together, we will unpack the unique personal and professional journeys of these creative entrepreneurs and get to know the whys and hows of the digital businesses they've built. As part of our Summer Abroad mini-series, we will have a new episode for you every week. For four weeks... I'm Amber Vince Box, president and co-founder of Reward Style and Like to Know It, and an influencer myself. Welcome to Influencer Radio, Summer Abroad. Today we're speaking with Lorna Andrews, known online as Lorna Lux. Her meteoric rise reached new heights this year after breaking sales record with her debut collection for UK retailer In The Style. Lorna is one of the most loved influencers in the Like to Know It app for her European minimalist look. She's an influencer to the influencers. To her 800,000 social followers, Lorna's life is hashtag goals. She's rarely seen without her handsome husband, known as Mr. Lux, and her oversized or skinny glasses, an enviable glow. Starting out her career as an air hostess, or flight attendant as we call them in the States, Lorna is still racking up the air miles, jet-setting to luxurious places, shooting campaigns with some of the largest brands in the world. Reflecting on her journey, we will discuss family life, overcoming an eating disorder, her biggest advocate and source of strength, and her path to becoming the successful businesswoman that she is today. I'm so excited to welcome Lorna to Influencer Radio. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Lorna, tell us about your early life. Where did this all begin?
1: Oh, very, very different to my life now. I was brought up in Manchester, which is in the north of England. And it's just, um, it's a far cry from how I live now. I lived in very small, humble, shall we say, home with my mom and my grandparents. And I had a really nice childhood and very loving, um, but not what I would say affluent in any way. So I wasn't um, a rich kid growing up.
0: Was your family from Manchester?
1: Yeah, so my mum was born and bred in Manchester, my grandparents were, but they came from the kind of, um, not rougher, but um, the less privileged part of Manchester in Salford, Um, so often as a kid I would hear about their childhood and the fact that they had like 10 kids in one room and their toilet was outside and it's just, it was very, for me, when I grew up, I realised quite quickly as a kid that this wasn't how I wanted to live forever, that I always dreamed of having something more and... um, I think my parent, my mom especially, and my nana both encouraged that.
0: So you grew up with your mother and your grandparents. Yeah. And was your dad around?
1: He wasn't. He kind of left the scene when I was very young. My parents divorced and we just lost touch. And to be honest with you, I think my granddad stepped into that role and became a kind of dad figure. So I never felt like I'd missed out in not having a dad. In fact, I think I had like three parents as opposed to one or two. So I I never really looked at it as um, a bad or a negative thing.
0: What was your mom like growing up? I think that she was probably, um,
1: there were less opportunities for her and came from obviously quite a poor background. And she would talk about how when she became like a teenager, she went bombing around France. And I think she was quietly confident, but not the same level of confidence that I've had. So she never really left Manchester. Um, which was something that at seventeen, I just literally was the first thing I wanted to do. What were you interested in as a child? Well, it was difficult for me because I was quite a big girl as a a little girl. I, I had like not a weight problem as such, but I was quite a fat kid. And so I used to be quite sort of not like shy about hanging out with other kids on the estate. so I would stay at home quite a lot. and a lot of my interests were quite creative. So I used to love painting and I played the piano. And they were quite insular um, activities, which is crazy for me because I'm a Leo and like, I'm quite allowed and I'm quite confident now. So looking back to my childhood, I'm like, that was a whole part of my personality that was kind of not really brought out until I got older. But I definitely think as a child, my weight really impacted the way I thought of myself in my friendship circles. And it did make me a bit shy.
0: Did you ever go outside the home to work or when was your first job?
1: So my first job was actually when I was doing my A-level. So I would have been like 16, 17 and I got a job working for Dixon's and Curry's which they like sell like white goods and TVs and it was very male-dominated environment and I just loved it because I'd been so sort of cocooned in only having female friends and like my family and now I was working with guys and Um, I was getting attention from men and just realizing that, you know, I had this confidence in me to flirt and to to sell. I learned how to be a sales girl. Um, And I think those skills, I maintain today that that first job has probably had more impact on the career I do now than anything else.
0: What kind of things did you learn on the sales floor?
1: I think just how to negotiate, how to, you know, people would walk into the shop and they don't need or want anything. And yet you have the capacity to make them want and need anything depending on the conversations you have so the powers of persuasion of empathy and and not being uh, judgmental about people just because of the way they maybe look and so I was quite keen to work in either sales or customer service from that job so I knew from that moment that whatever I did as a career would be very much uh, front-facing you know, somewhere where I could meet the general public day to day.
0: So of all the people that we've interviewed, no one has talked about working in electronic store. Really? Everyone has <laughs> talked about how they, you know, maybe they worked in fashion or in a bakery. Um, were you always interested in fashion? Do you know I
1: was, but I my fashion was quite limited in a way. And my holidays I would always buy dolls in the shops. So I'd always make Mum buy me a, a doll and I would line them up in my suitcase. And I was very attracted to the aesthetics of things. So I think the reason it played out into fashion was because of the travel that came later. Um, But certainly at 16, 17, I mean, I look back at those photographs, I look terrible. Like some of my outfit combinations, I mean, not good. So I don't think, I can't really sit here and say that I was going to be a fashionista at 17 because it just was not looking good.
0: So you wanted out of Manchester. Yeah. And you had experience working in electronics. How? What was your plan? How were you going to get out? Well, so the plan was that I wanted to be a classical pianist. So
1: I did do my A-level music and got my piano um, exams. And then after that, uh, I got to university and... Uh, began sort of playing piano and whatnot. And then I had a practical lesson in this chap that was uh, my tutor. I'll never forget him. Agustin Fernandez. I think he was from kind of South America. He was very attractive and sort of dark and mysterious. And he was like, Lorna, I have to tell you something. And I was like, what? And he was like, you're never going to be a classical pianist because your hands are too small. And I was like, what? So he kind of encouraged me to look at other courses within the same university. And I ended up uh, switching from just pure music to doing music in English lit so that I had like a, a backstop because it was kind of like quite crushing. And although I don't think deep down I wanted to be a classical pianist, I think my personality was like, if you tell me I can't do something, I kind of want to prove you wrong. And in this instance, physically, it was impossible. It was a big learning curve uh, at that age to be told that.
0: That's so interesting that he kind of squashed your dreams in a way especially <laughs> as a young girl. And for someone so successful, you usually hear about people who are successful encouraging other people. And I, I've heard a great quote that it's like no one who is actually successful will ever look down on you for working hard. Yeah. Um, but I've never heard a thing about small hands. That's a thing for a yeah. classical pianist. And I think he was quite
1: fond of me. And I think he just didn't want me to, you know, spend the next four years studying for something only to get out into the big bad world and not have a job. So did you date him? No, no. He he did actually date somebody on the course. She was very beautiful. But I did have great friendships with all the tutors at uni. And I've always got on with older people. I think being brought up by grandparents, I always had quite a lot of respect for the older person. I mean, I married someone who's 20 years older than me. And I just think I've always been drawn to, I don't know, older personalities, both in my relationships as well as my friendships.
0: Yeah, you grew up as an old soul. Yeah, yeah, maybe. So with an English degree, what do you do with that?
1: Well, I just didn't know what because I didn't want to go home. My mum was like, you're going to have to come home now. You've got your degree because, like, I can't afford to pay for you to live up there and you need to get a job. And up there was London. Yeah. Uh, Well, Newcastle, so right up north. And so we kind of spoke about it a couple of times. And then eventually I ended up applying for a job with Virgin Atlantic. I saw the back of a magazine of Cosmopolitan. There was an advert. And this girl looked really glam in like a little red outfit, and I was like, I could do this. I got this. So I applied for it, um, got all the papers, applied and sent it away, and I got an interview, um, which I nearly didn't go to, and luckily my mum had come to visit and had been in the room when my friend had said, you need to get a grip, like you need to get a proper job, and she was annoyed by that and so said, right, I'm going to book your flight for you, I'll pay for your flight to, to London if you go to the interview. So, yeah, thanks, mom, for that, because... I don't think I would have ever had that opportunity but for her.
0: How how supportive and selfless of her?
1: I think she has always been quite a selfless character. When I look back, um, she's not really interfering. She's just someone that's like a solid character in my life. that always kind of comes through and roots for me.
0: It sounds like she's optimizing your opportunities, really. She's waiting for you to really identify what you're interested in and then coming in to do what she can as a parent to make that happen. Yeah, she's like a very, very special
1: woman. And um, I probably don't call her enough So when she's listening to this.
0: <laughs> Shout out, Mom. Yeah. So you got the job. I got the job. And was this because of the love of travel? Because the woman looks so glam in the magazine? I mean, what you? I don't know. what. The, when I went to the interview, it was like um, X Factor. So it was like a series of auditions
1: through the day. And I wasn't really expecting it. And then as we got into the auditions, I really got into it quite quickly. And I was like, well, this is quite good fun. And so the final, at each interview, people would drop away and they would put you into two rooms. And that happened like three or four times that day. And I thought, God, I've made it this far. If I don't get this job now, I'm going to be so annoyed. So when I got to the final interview, the guy said, actually, what are you going to do if you don't get this job? So I kind of thought on my feet and was like, well, I think I'm going to try and get some experience for another airline, like a, you know, a less call cool airline and then come back to you. Because I've really enjoyed the day and I'd really enjoyed meeting such interesting people. And it was a very interesting company to work for. And I got the job. I think that year, 800,000 people applied and only 800 jobs were given out. Wow. So I was so fluky because I had no experience. I'd never, I didn't even know like how to open a bottle of wine. And here I was kind of getting this job. Laura,
0: I love that. If you look at your profile today... You're endlessly chic, almost have an untouchable look to you because it's so glam, so well put together um, and and so unique. And so I would not in a million years have thought that as you're getting your first job, you would not know how to open a bottle. Oh, no, it's buy. a blacker.
1: I've always been a bit blaggy like that, though. I've always kind of, I don't know, talked my way into things. And then I think that old adage about, you know, you sh- you learn on the job. I've always been a great advocate of that. And again, with blogging, like I didn't have a clue when I started that. I think you just have to have a passion to share something or want to create or do something, whatever that job role may be. So yeah, I was very lucky to get that job. So you moved to London to work at the airline? Yeah, I did. So I had to move down for six weeks to train at Gatwick, which is kind of, well, Crawley is quite a small little place uh, near the airport. And I met these two girls on the course very cool girls. And the three of us decided that we wanted to live in Brighton, because that was where all the hot guys that worked for Virgin lived. And so we got a house, the three of us, and it was a party. So I spent probably my early 20s, although I had a career as an air hostess, I was a party girl. And I was, if I wasn't going out, um, you know, on a trip, I was going out in Brighton. Is
0: this where Mr. Lux came along? Was Brighton?
1: It was, but not till a lot later. (laughs) A lot more boyfriends under the bridge before I met Mr. Lux. I always see Mr. Lux as, like, he saved me. And um at the time when I met Mr. Lux, I was actually selling my flat with my ex-boyfriend. And uh, I was quite heartbroken, actually, by that relationship. And then when I met him, yeah, it was just like, where, where have you been all my life? It was an instant chemistry.
0: What do you think about him made you feel so
1: safe? I just think he's such a kind man. And he's got such integrity. And he's very moralistic. You know, even... Small things like the other day, we've just come back from Rome and we had really bad service in a restaurant and I was like, don't tip them. But of course he had to go and give the guy a tip because he was like, no, because morally that's what you should do. And he's just got, he's got such a strong sense of self and it's kind of brought out a lot of good qualities in me. Not always willingly, but... (laughs)
0: No, it's nice to have that influence in your life. Yeah. It sounds like in that way y'all are sort of, I'm not saying that you're the yang du is yin from a moral perspective, but you you want to have those people who have those qualities that you don't. So that, you know, yeah. it's, if you are essentially, you know, you plus the other person divide by two, mm-hmm. um, you obviously want to be with somebody who, who is going to make you a better person.
1: Yeah. And find and different qualities. I think I bring out qualities in him. I make him quite soft at work. He's a director and he's quite hard nosed and, I think people are scared of him sometimes. And then with me, he's quite soft and he has like silly voices for me and we name everything. So we talk in our own language at home. And I don't know. I think I've brought out quite a soft side to him.
0: So when you met Mr. Lux, you're still working at the airline. Yeah. So I took him
1: on all my trips. He loved it. And then after about two years, um, well, no, a year and a half, we'd got married. We got married very quickly. I knew, you know, you just know. And I think I just had this overwhelming sense of, oh, why don't I feel as if I've achieved enough? I was getting near 30 and I felt not so much depressed, as, although I did end up very depressed. But initially, I think it was just a sense of not achieving enough. And I got very self-focused. Um, and as a consequence of that, I ended up becoming obsessed with the gym and with diet and exercise. I remember I was a member of David Lloyd Gyms and they had three gyms within like a thirty mile radius. And because I didn't want any of the gyms to clock that I was going more than once a day, I would drive from one gym to the next. Oh wow. And I was literally obsessed with it. Um it rolled my entire life, if I'm honest. Um and that was part of the reason why I left Virgin. I kind of had to leave. They asked me to stop flying because I was so poorly. What does um that mean? I was just very underweight and mentally not in a great place. And um In the end, John was able to say, uh, Mr. Lux is John, Um, he was able to just say to me, look, we can financially afford for you to not fly if you want to get better properly and not have that pressure of work. Um, And I don't think a lot of people that are in my situation have that. So I was quite fortunate in that sense, because most people that go through any kind of mental illness usually don't have the luxury of not being employed or
0: not having to work and whatnot. So, yeah, it was quite a big time for me. Something that I've learned lately is that the things that are most upsetting to me are self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. And my husband often points that out as, I'll have anxiety about something, and he's like, well, who said that you needed to do that thing? And it's like, well, I, I impose that in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've tried to recognize that lately, and it sounds like you had a similar experience and that um, I and many of my friends and colleagues have had, is you, you have a certain age in mind where you think it's going to be a certain way, or something's going to mm-hmm. change, or you will have done X, Y, Z by this point. And the age of 30 is, is Something that a lot of people think about, men and women, mm. um, and reflect back of I thought as a child. By the time that I was thirty, I would either have a house or a family or have started a business or whatever it is the things that they wanted to achieve. Yeah. Um, and so that is a tough time. And for you, is what I'm hearing that that was actually gave you such anxiety that actually impacted your mental health and physical health. I just think, really, I was so determined that I just thought if once I'm married, my li- I will feel
1: so much more confident. And I think my eating disorder, when it played out, I'd actually, if I look back, had a, an eating disorder my entire Virgin Atlantic career, because obviously, when you're a girl and you're partying and you're surrounded by beautiful women, I was very concerned with how I looked, and I would binge and I would undereat and overeat and live to excess and then compensate. Mm-hmm. So I think all those um, those traits in my lifestyle kind of culminated in this, and it was kind of building up. But I certainly, once I'd got married, and then not still not feeling good enough. And knowing that 30 was looming, it all just came crashing around me and I didn't really know how to get out of it. And I look back now and I kind of want to shake her and say, right, stop going to the gym, start eating some food. Um, When you're mentally able to realise where you're going wrong. But I was so underweight that by then it was too late for me and I needed intervention, which I actually had.
0: Mm -hmm. And so how long were you intervention in, like in the home or did, you know, inpatient, outpatient?
1: Yeah, I had counselling, um, really pricey counselling. So it was very expensive. And even to the point where we, even though we were quite well off, we felt it was too expensive. And then I ended up being um, offered a place at the Priory, which in the UK is kind of a really well-respected clinic. Um, and I'd agreed to go in there in the day, but then come home at night times. So I was very keen that I had to come home at night times. And when I went in for the first day, they were like, look, we can't help you if you don't stay overnight. You need to stay here for a month. Otherwise, there's nothing we can do for you. So it's either all or nothing. And I was like, oh. So I remember getting into the car, going home with John to get my suitcase and saying to him, if you make me go to this you know, place for a month, when I, I will do it. But when I come back, I don't want us to be together anymore. I'm going to leave you. Because for you to put me in that situation, not on my own free will, means you're not the right man for me and he was like right you're not going (laughs) so it was kind of a very strong moment in our marriage where he did what my mom and everyone was telling him not to do and he had my back and he trusted me and so together we I mean it took a long time but we worked on my health together and obviously I continued to see a counsellor and I got better really slowly but having that tenderness and that support was so like crucial for me and yeah I kind of owe him a lot for that actually
0: it's incredible because sometimes the 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 spouse in the situation or maybe it's a parent or a sibling it becomes the enabler and it sounds like that was very much not no, your experience i think sometimes he he had a guilt inside him that thought he was the
1: enabler but he certainly wasn't i was very secretive it's a very secretive illness and it also made me realize how secretive i could be and how much i disliked myself because of the lies that i was telling and something that's come through, I think, in my Instagram and the way I am online now is that I'm very transparent, almost sometimes painfully transparent. And people often say to me or DM me, why are you so like honest about stuff? And I think it comes from that having that time of having to keep it all cooked up inside and how unhealthy I felt. Now I'm just like, just let it out. And then if people judge you, they can't make me feel any worse than I already have felt. So I don't really care for comparison or for being judged. I only allow myself to judge me, if that makes sense.
0: When did you start
1: putting yourself online? I actually started as a way to kind of mentally keep track of how I was doing and make sure I wasn't going backwards. So each day I joined Instagram and then each day I would post a mirror selfie. And had you turned 30? Yeah, yeah. I think I was like 31, 32. Okay. And I joined Instagram, I thought it was brilliant, lots of beautiful pictures, and it was very minimalist at the time, There's a lot of white and like glossiness, and so I would post a, um, a mirror selfie each day. And because I didn't really have many friends at that time, because obviously if you're not eating and drinking, you're not going out. And although I was getting better, I was at home a lot, so I had a lot of time on my hands to just natter and chat to people online. And I think that was so important for me, and the growth of my Instagram was that I had so much time to engage. I mean, I'm big, I'm, I'm always saying engage, engage, engage. But back then it was even more vital. Um, and so, yeah, I built up like a really lovely community of friends that I've still got to this
0: day, actually. It's incredible because not many people have that story. Not many people go to a social media in order to feel better and to get better. Mm. And the way that you've approached it just flipped that completely on its head. And it's, I'm going to be me and be authentic. And actually, I'm going to build a community that can help support me in this journey. Yeah. And I, think, I don't think anybody really realized that I
1: had an eating disorder. I didn't really talk about it. Um, it's probably quite obvious to some people. But what was lovely was that I could find completely uh, different interests with people. And it really took my mind off it. And I know it sounds to some quite shallow to be talking about handbags and sunglasses and whatnot every day. But for me, it was therapy because it was a moment where I wasn't thinking about the way I looked and my weight and and the things that bugged me and worried me. Did you end up starting uh, like a website or a blog? Yeah. So I'd got I'd left Virgin. I'd finally got another job because John was like, you need to get a job now. And for your own sake, just so you feel great. And so I worked in like a warehouse uh, for an online retailer. And they used to take photographs for the website. And so I was really interested in that. And they encouraged me to set up my own blog. So they kind of helped me with it. I remember I set up my WordPress blog. And my first blog post was terrible. But I was so proud of it. And I didn't understand about SEO or keywords or any of that. I was just putting out something that I thought was great online. I didn't even read other people's blogs. So I wasn't even coming at it from an informed perspective. It was just, when I look back now, it's very naive. And um, actually, my blog has always been lovely to have, but it's never really taken off the way my social has taken off. I think the instantaneousness of the way I am as a person has really played out on Instagram and Twitter and not really
0: uh, suited to my personality. I'm too impatient for blogs it's something that we've seen over the last 2 years the last um, several groups of influencers that applied to reward style have been over 80% mobile only or mobile first and something that you know might not be as apparent to the industry today is actually to have a blog you actually had to have a lot of technical savvy and it was really you needed a partner that was an engineer first of all to even teach you while you know not bashing on WordPress. I think it's a fantastic platform. It's what my site is on, but it is a little difficult to use. And it's, it's much more difficult than Instagram, for example. Yeah. Um, and then to actually do it successfully, it's not just that you have beautiful content or engaging content, but there's actually a lot technically that goes into the backend. Like you mentioned the SEO and the alt tags, and there's a complete strategy to, yeah. to building a website that you're able to free yourself of, when you're on social media and so what we're seeing today is that influencers now they might back into a blog but they don't start there
1: yeah and I I kind of look at my blog now as it's something that I'll always own it's my own space everything else is owned by someone else you know Instagram Facebook whatever it's kind of controlled by a third party whereas the content on my blog is very much my own so I am quite protective of it I'm sure at some point I'll come back to it I think I kind of dip in and out of it now and every now and then I post something and people are like, oh, my God, you posted something on your blog. Because I'm just not that consistent. And yet in every other
0: area of my business, I'm so consistent. I think what I'm hearing from you also is that you have different content that's appropriate for different outlets. Mm. And so tell me about the different things that you put on your blog versus your Instagram versus your like to know it. I think my blog was very much about
1: um, where I'd been. So it became more travely, y really, um, and my opinions on things. Um, a little bit more personal insight and more storytelling. My Instagram is really my home and like daily I post maybe 20 store Instagram stories a day and then try to post at least one Instagram on the grid a day. And then Twitter really is my place to go and have a wind or a moan or if I'm watching television I want to talk about what I'm watching and I love that about it. And then for like to note posts I find that I'm cautious now not to over post the same outfit look so I, t- I try to um, use like to know it as more of kind of oh this is completely new outfit. Because once I've referenced a blazer, I don't feel like I need to keep referencing the same look. Um, So it's a bit more curated, if I'm honest.
0: Something that was interesting that your husband encouraged you to do was kind of fill your time. And then something that you said earlier was once you started getting depressed, it was because you started focusing so inward. So Mm. tell me, how would you encourage women who are going through um, any kind of of mental illness to um, help themselves?
1: It's really tricky isn't it because actually when I was going through it the things that I would want someone to have given me advice on I wouldn't have taken them up because I was so consumed by my own practices and I was very regimented almost and I think habit is a big thing so if you get into a habit it's much easier to stay in it than to to change it so I think finding little things to tweak your habits will lead to bigger habit changes so I think anyone that's struggling with any kind of mental illness or feeling of anxiety Look at what you can achieve that day that's different to what you've done the day before, and it doesn't have to have anything to do with your you know physical interactions. It can be something simple like do you know what today I'm going to wash my hair in the morning and not night. Try to change up routines that are comfortable to you because I think that in that almost encourages a bravery in your in the way you do things. Um, And yesterday I was watching something on TV and they I think it was Love Island. The guy said he practices laughing therapy and apparently it's the one muscle that when you laugh, your body laughs. Your mental mind can't tell whether it's a real laugh or so it just automatically thinks that you're happier. So I I, I don't know I'm going to start practicing that, but I think just smile. I try to smile a lot um, because even when I'm feeling sad, if I'm smiling, people smile back and it makes me automatically feel happier.
0: So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Tell us a little bit about Mr. Lux, because he has his own online platform and is also a very attractive human on this earth. He is, but he's very... So, for example, his Instagram is private, um, but he's had
1: like thousands of friend requests. which I think he's collecting them. He thinks it's brilliant that all these people want to be his friend, but that they're not. Um, And he's also got a really important job. So day to day, this is not his priority, um, I think I'm his priority and he will, like, he's going to meet me after this interview and we'll shoot in London. So I always catch him on his lunch breaks and um, at weekends. But he's quite um, a solid guy to have in my life, really. And he's not interested in being famous or being on the internet. Is he involved in your business? He really is now, yeah. He obviously is my photographer, um, willingly. And then also he manages all my um, admins. So although I have management he will look after all my invoices and he's in the banking world anyway. So he's quite, he loves maths and numbers and stats and he loves converting everything into percentages. So he will manage all of that. And then daily he checks my stats and lets me know how I'm performing in my own growth on all of my platforms, which is quite amusing because we usually chat about it over dinner and he'll have like broken down where I was, where I am today versus where I was a year ago. And, you know, it's quite interesting to hear.
0: Well, it's incredible to hear, A, how much he has adored you over time, the things that he has done to pour into you as part of your relationship, but I th- you know, you often hear about like, the quote, the blogger boyfriend, but really what you're uncovering is is what does happen sometimes, which is that more than just the photographer. I mean, a lot of times your partner has so many skills that, that you don't know. That's my situation. It's your situation. What they're actually bringing to the table allows you to be quite competitive. It's always nice to have, I'm going to call it just like a co-founder, essentially. Yeah, yeah a I teammate. agree. I mean, we are, we
1: on his lighter, he's a smoker, which I hate. He knows about that. But on his lighter, he's got team looks etched into it. And it's just very, it really is a team. We're a team. We come as a pair. I don't really travel without him now.
0: You have um, a clothing line that has done very well and been picked up for extra seasons. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of influencers are thinking about today is kind of what what's next for me and what feels like an achievement. Tell me a little bit about the line and your experience in creating that. I think my experience has been quite
1: um, a big one. And uh, certainly when they reached out to me and contacted me, wanting to work with me, I didn't believe it. I thought, no, they don't really mean that. And then I found myself in Manchester having a meeting with the founder um, and realised even in that first meeting that this is a business. This isn't about drawing nice, pretty pictures and wearing dresses. He came with like an eight page document on all of the stats and all the reasons why he felt I would be good for his business, why he would be good for my business and why my community would enjoy what he had to offer um, i was quite firm from the offset that i was like if i'm going to do this it's going to be on my terms yes. um, not necessarily financially but certainly creatively i had a huge amount of input in everything that we've put out and are putting out now and i remember going to there on the first day i was like meeting the two designers i came with all these mood boards and like drawings and i was so excited and I'm so grateful to this day actually that the team that he has that work for him are so talented and they really took on board everything from even at the minute we're chatting, they're in China sourcing fabrics and we text every day on WhatsApp to talk about the colour of a print or I've had things reworked eight or nine times. They really indulge my OCD, shall we say. But the great thing about that is that when it does finally come to market in each sense that we've launched... I felt very confident that I love this, I back this. This is 100% me. And I think that's why it's done quite well because I think the people that maybe follow me can see that and see how true to me it is. And, yeah, I'm just chuffed to bits. It's been really hard work. It's very tiring. And there's a lot of pressure. Of course, people... I, I reply to everyone on Instagram and a lot of people think that it's my company or it's my brand. So I become customer services you know, I get text messages about when's my delivery going to be sent. And it's been brilliant because I feel so part of it. But I think that if I were to have my own brand, I would want more of a distance from the front line, as it were, um, because
0: I just don't think I could manage it all on on my own. It's incredible. The things that go into it that are behind the scenes. And and like you said, fashion's a business, influence is a business. and, And there are truly teams behind all of this. What has been the most surprising thing about creating your own line or what did you not expect? I didn't
1: expect that people would be so willing to spend money on something that I'd designed and also that people would be so willing to share it as well. I think I always imagined that only influencers would share their outfit of the days. And what's happened is that there's a whole tribe of real women that aren't influencers, that have normal jobs, that are taking pictures of the clothing that I've designed and supporting me and sharing it. And I just never expected that. I think that came from having a community. And I think that's why that's the beauty of an influencer uh, brand partnership is that you're kind of buying into every single person that's ever reached. You know, it's kind of like word of mouth, but at scale, isn't it? It's been very stressful to kind of do a second and a third collection because, of course, the first one had sold out so quickly. There was this a huge amount of expectation that the second would do as well, which, thank God it did. And of course, there was a lot of um, articles written about it. So I just felt very overwhelmed that i had to live up to my own expectations not anyone else's again it goes back to that thing doesn't it if we put pressure on ourselves and like you say your husband says you know who actually has told you you need to do that um but in my own head i always feel like i need to overachieve i don't know
0: speaking of overachieving you know you've attracted massive audiences you've you've now done this brand partnership um You've been blogging now for, for many years. I'll call it loosely blogging because yeah. I know it's not all, all on your website. <laughs> but, you know. but what is it that you're learning lately? Because even though you've achieved all of these things, the industry is changing so quickly. And so what are little tips and tricks that you have just realized or that you're putting into practice? And maybe that's you're captioning differently or you're taking your photos differently or you're posting in a different cadence. It could be anything.
1: I mean, I'm really noticing now that when I joined Instagram, it was very much, uh, it was a community based on experimenting and you're almost encouraged to be very experimental. The algorithm isn't set for that. So the newest algorithms that we work to now are about what did her audience like most? And then whenever she posts that, we're going to support that and reach it to as, as many people as possible. So I think anybody, me included, that's creating content for this platform needs to be mindful of that and to be creating I'd say repetition, but also content that is very similar both in style, setting and situation. So certainly when I'm traveling, it becomes more difficult because I'm always trying to look for the same similar setups. I would never have done that four years ago. In fact, I would have been doing the opposite. I would have been looking for completely different settings and different backdrops. And I also do believe that that coupled with the power of engagement and you know, certainly when I want to drive engagement to my own post, I engage with other people I follow because that drives conversation. So I don't think conversation will ever be lost. But as I'm noticing as I'm getting bigger in terms of my followers, that doesn't have as huge an impact as maybe it would when I had, you know, a hundred thousand followers or whatever. So I think the algorithm fight is gonna be something that you're gonna hear and you are hearing a lot of people talk about. And I don't feel it's going to impact my business from um, a financial perspective, should we say, but it's certainly at the minute affecting my creative because I am very cautious to create anything too new um, in the fear that it won't be seen because the algorithm will see it as something different.
0: Has Light to Know It been a place for you where you're publishing those creative things or where is your outlet?
1: Um, I'm definitely an outfit of the day girl for LTK, so obviously it's very important that you can see pretty much the whole outfit. Um, and yeah, I'm in a bit of a routine at the minute and obviously you can't get too comfortable. So I'm just back from my trip and this next few days I'm going to spend at home strategizing about how I want to take my content for the next month and analyzing. I'm a great analyzer um, and I really use my stats to the the nth degree. I write it all down and I, I look for patterns, for trends. I look at other people. I look to see where they're going wrong or why they've gone wrong. And yeah, if someone's growth has slowed down, I wanna know why. And the same with me, if my growth has slowed down, we've got a problem and I need to fix it. So I am very quite businessy about it. But I just, I'm not an emotional person about my product, shall we say? (laughs) So I see my business as something that I need to be less emotional about, which means that when I go on stories or whatever, I'm much more, you get the real Lorna there. Although I'm very aesthetically minded, so it is quite pretty. The stories are all quite pretty. The content is very truthful to me um, and I'm quite open about how I'm feeling at whatever stage I'm, you know, whatever I'm doing, I'll be honest about it. If I get criticism, I'll share it. If I get applauded, I'll share that. Uh, But the actual grid, I'm in quite a, a rhythm, shall we say.
0: What are kind of some tips and tools for people who are just starting out? Maybe it's certain organization apps or analytics that you're using or what are some like tangible things that people today can either go download or start doing? I think from your own perspective, if you've got a business account or a creator's
1: account, Social Blade is a great place to track your growth day to day because obviously it gives you stats that maybe the Instagram app isn't quite so clear about. So I quite like that. Um, I don't have a business account. I've never switched. I've always felt... That I always loved the fact that I had the insights and I didn't have to have a business account. So I never switched. And you have the insights through Social Blade or through your blue check? No, because I think I don't think it was through the blue Tick. I think it was just I just had a big enough account at the time when they were giving insights out. I got chosen. So although my management are always like, I think we should switch to a business account. I've never yet done it. In fact, I'd be quite interested if anyone's listening to this and has opinions on that, like message me about it because I am toying between should I or not. Um, so, I don't have the access to things like Social Blade stats, um, but I can see how when I used to have Social Blade, how, how much I used it. Whereas now I manually do it. So, John actually physically looks at my following every single day at the same time. And then we discuss it over dinner. <laughs> yeah. What is it about the business account that gives you pause? I think just the idea of anonymity that I have at the minute, basically, you're giving rights to data protection that at the minute, the reason they can't publish my stats on say an app like social blade is because I haven't given them permission whereas I think when you have a business account and you've given permission I always think what else have I given them permission for and I think there is a huge distrust about the internet and just a fear that you know your information may land you know you can google me now and all of a sudden my address appears and you can see my house on a map and it's quite it just it scares me a little bit and I think how much do people know about us and I am quite a private person I don't show where I live really much I never really show my home, just because not because I'm not proud of it, just because I quite like the, you know, the little bit of me that it's just mine and John's. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think your mom
0: thinks of this business now?
1: I think she thinks I'm crazy. She picked me up yesterday because I didn't have my car, um, so I asked her to take me to the shops to get some food, and I was on my phone the entire journey to the shops. And when we pulled up, she was like, "Did you hear anything I just said?" And I was like, "Yes, I can multitask," but. I think I'm have an i quite addictive personality and I think I've got an addiction to my business and to my phone. And I think a lot of people have. And I don't think that parents, because they come from a different generation, I don't think they can understand it. And it is a bit weird. And my husband is quite a similar age to my mum. But because he lives with me and is with me all the time, he completely gets it. And he almost encourages me. If I've not been on my phone for like half an hour, he's like, you're not going to check... You had any messages, anything important? Whereas my mum is just so kind of looking at it from a different outlet, which is it's a bit rude. You know, you're with me now. Put your phone down. So I'm really conscious of it. And when I got up for dinners and things, I don't tend to have my phone out. Even when we came in here and you were like, is everyone, can you turn your phone off? I was like, I've not got my phone with me. And I think it's because you're probably so used to everybody walking in with their phone.
0: And we do now. We all live by our phones, don't we? No, Completely. So do you and Mr. Lux put boundaries around your digital time or is it just it's always on? It's just always on. And I, I'm terrible because I do have my phone. I take it to bed.
1: You know, my alarm clock's on my phone. It's the last thing I look at. It's the first thing I look at. I don't know, you know, I don't know where this is all going. I just actually recently did a panel talk for The Telegraph and it was the title of the talk was Is Social Media in Your Life? And I really kind of talked about it on Instagram and asked people on stories to give me questions and tell me their experiences. There was an overwhelming sense of, yeah, we don't really... We feel less worthy and, you know, I think psychologically it can affect you, especially if you spend a lot of time on it. And one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about on that panel talk, which I kind of did, was just to encourage people to self-edit who they follow. So although I follow a 1,000 people, I kind of mute quite a lot of it and each week I'll edit that and I try and streamline the content that I'm being exposed to based on my mood and what I'm doing and how I'm feeling. And certainly if I'm feeling a bit fat and a bit ugly that week, I'm probably not going to want to see all the girls in Bondi Beach in their bikinis. And likewise, if I'm thinking about decorating the house, I probably do want to see what you know all the girls that have got you know home accounts um, are up to. So I think it's just taking more power. I think we're a bit scared to take ownership of our exposure... But you are a product of what you're exposed to so I think there needs to be a lot more accountability on this on the side of the people that use the platform and not just um, the owners and the creators of the platforms.
0: What are you thinking about next for your business?
1: Well I think um, after the next collection drops which will be in July I'm actually dropping one on tomorrow but another one I'm working on at the minute I think I need a rest. Um, I'm celebrating 10 years of marriage with John, so I think we're gonna go on holiday and just chill and have a few days of just doing what we want to do. And then September I'm gonna be I've got a flat renting in Paris. I'm gonna be spending more time in Paris and I really enjoy that time there. But in terms of business, I don't know. I've got a few things up my sleeve,
0: but nothing confirmed. Lorna, it's a pleasure to get to speak with you. And for those of you, you know, who aren't sitting in the room, which is everybody else, she looks endlessly chic as always, um, making me want to go grab a blazer. (laughs) But you can follow her at Lorna Lux in the Like to Know It app. Her lines are absolutely beautiful. And she does a fantastic job of mixing high and low and really embodies the minimalist European um, look that so many influencers want today and you're a fantastic role model for us and we appreciate just your generosity and sharing your story. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Like to Know It, Influencer Radio follow Lorna's impeccable elevated street style and keep up with her new collection releases in the Like to Know It app at Lorna Lux. That's Lux with an E. In listening to this podcast, I hope you find your people, the ones with backgrounds, circumstances, and dreams just like you, and that their stories empower you on your own journey. Are you ready to binge Influencer Radio? Flip back to season one for nine more episodes and be sure to hit subscribe because we have a lot more coming your way. Continue to follow along with all of our guests, all in the Like to Know It app. Their handles are listed in the description box of each episode. Do you have the app? The Like to Know It app is the only place where you can go to search for products and get 100% shoppable results, all in the context of the lives of the real influential people who actually use those products. We've indexed the millions of Like to Know It influencer posts and made them all searchable and shoppable for you in one place. Is your mind blown? Download the free Like to Know It app on the App Store and Google Play and start searching today. Let's go shopping.